Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 153, The Tomb of King Tutankhamun, part one. Today we embark on a mini-series, covering the burial of King Tutankhamun, a subterranean suite filled with priceless artefacts, countless objects and treasures, religious texts, and, of course, the mummy. The resting place of King Tutankhamun, lying mostly undisturbed since the day of his funeral. This episode is long, I hope you will forgive me if I don't cut to the chase right away. I am going to take my time recounting this story. That may seem slow, but in the big picture, I think this will be worth it. The tomb of King Tutankhamun is a unique monument. Obviously, it is beautifully preserved but we also have a wonderful record of the discovery and the excavation. I won't get many chances to describe a tomb in this kind of detail, so assuming we only live once, I intend to cover as much as I can. That being said, this is not a blow-by-blow, every-single-detail story. The tale of Howard Carter and the tomb of King Tutankhamun has many facets. There is the historical angle, the story of Tutankhamun himself. There is the artistic angle, the description of his treasures and what they mean. There is the archaeology angle, the story of exploration, discovery, excavation, and conservation. Then there is the political angle, the tale of relationships, disputes, cooperation, and conflicts between different parties. The story of this tomb is intimately connected with the history of modern Egypt, When the monument came to light, Egypt was in the middle of an independence movement, and the tomb was a lightning rod for certain issues. The arguments and compromises made by different groups are relevant to this day. So, as you can guess, this is a big and complicated story, and I hope you will forgive me if I skip over certain questions and topics, at least for now. While we are in the midst of our 18th dynasty narrative, I want to focus on one thing, the burial of King Tutankhamun as a historical record. I will discuss the major events surrounding the excavation, the search, the discovery, the controversies, and yes, the curse, quote-unquote. But I won't write the definitive, all-encompassing narrative of this event. I'm not sure that is even possible today, and there are some topics that are best left to the future. When, one day, I discuss the modern history of Egypt, and the history of Egyptology as a science, we can cover those topics. For now, in the next few episodes, let's keep our eye on two things. The tomb of King Tutankhamun, and how it came to light. As usual, I have divided this episode into chapters, with musical interludes. If you need to take a break, those are good places to do so. Alternatively, I have put time codes in the episode description. 
So if you really want to skip ahead and jump to the discovery, you can do that. Out the gate, I will say that I am covering events up to and including the first moment of discovery. I will explore the context of this find, how it came about, the clues that maybe encouraged Carter in his search, and then the big one. Those four weeks in November 1922, when the world shrank to a tiny patch of ground west of Luxor City. And archaeological history, or legend, unfolded. Chapter 1. A Long-Expected Pharaoh In November 1922, Howard Carter and a team of excavators located the tomb of King Tutankhamun. The discovery of this monument has become legendary, a famous tale in archaeology and Egyptian history. That is a problem. Yes, the world knows the story, and it is great publicity for Egypt, Egyptology, and archaeology. But and this is a big but, the story of the excavation is riddled with uncertainties, contradictions, and controversies. Some issues are minor, others are quite important, at least for the character of the people involved. And after 100 years, these events have acquired their own myth. Sometimes, sifting the fact from the fiction is almost impossible. With that in mind, the story I am about to tell is not 100% accurate, quote-unquote. No matter how hard I, or any researcher, try, certain parts of this tale are vague. The historical records are not always complete. Sometimes they contradict one another. The discovery of the tomb was a moment of great excitement, and also great drama. As a result, different people, even those who were present, have different memories of what happened. Sometimes the gaps are small. Did a person say these words, or those words, that sort of thing. Sometimes the gaps are large. For example, which person or people actually located the tomb? Or when did Carter and his team first enter the monument? These questions are significant, and we don't have a 100% factual answer. So the best I can do is tell the tale, and let you know when things are murky. Maybe those gaps will be useful, giving us a sense of the excitement, the heady rush, and the chaos of this excavation. However you look at it, it is a fascinating tale. Depending on the story, the discovery of this tomb was either a total surprise or a long-expected success. It was surprising because the project had spent years digging, and in 1922, it seemed the archaeologists had failed. They had dug and dug and found nothing at all. So, on the one hand, the discovery of King Tutankhamun seemed like a miracle. On the other hand, the discovery may have been anticipated, expected even. Supposedly, Howard Carter suspected that Tutankhamun lay somewhere in the valley, a series of clues, small discoveries, gave him this idea. And when he got the chance, Carter launched his expedition, determined to find that tomb. That is the legendary version. You will find it in certain books, like Harry Winstone's 
Howard Carter and the Discovery of King Tutankhamun, or Thomas Hoving's Tutankhamun, The Untold Story. Both authors present Carter as convinced that the tomb of Tutankhamun lay in a specific area in the valley. Supposedly, he pursued that find obsessively, until at last he triumphed. It is a nice tale, and it sounds dramatic, even heroic. The learned archaeologist going against the odds, holding to his convictions, and finally gaining the prize. Cue the uplifting music, roll the credits, the audience is satisfied. But right out the gate, this is a difficult question. One of our first uncertainties in the tale. Did Howard Carter always plan to find Tutankhamun? Or was the discovery partly an accident? The truth is hard to pin down. We do know that Carter talked about the tomb of Tutankhamun. Records from this period show Howard Carter and his patron, Lord Carnarvon, mentioning that king, even before the tomb itself came to light. So at some point, the archaeologist started thinking about this ruler. And along the way, he may have searched for that tomb in particular. However, We also know that Howard Carter rarely discussed his ideas or his ambitions with other people. Carter was reserved, a private sort of person. Today, we might call him an introvert. He was friendly when he wanted, but he was cautious with friendships. And sometimes he was quite disagreeable. There are many stories of Howard Carter clashing with his colleagues and contemporaries, and several Egyptologists who worked with him wound up disliking Carter a lot. So he was not the most social of folks, and his personal relationships were spotty at best. What this means is that Carter was secretive with his ideas. According to one biography, quote, Carter was one to play his cards close to his chest. Early misjudgments had made him cautious. End quote. You might say he was jealous in case other people used his knowledge for their own benefit. The result is that Howard Carter shared little and recorded even less. He did not reveal his secrets easily. For historians, this makes it hard to figure him out. Was he always looking for Tutankhamun, or did he kind of get lucky? For the sake of argument, let's assume that Carter was looking for this tomb, or at the very least, he thought Tutankhamun lay somewhere in the Valley of the Kings. How did he get that idea? What clues pointed to an undiscovered burial? In the early 20th century, the name Tutankhamun was obscure. Egyptologists knew he existed, but his life and his reign were vague. The king's monuments were few, most of them destroyed or usurped by later generations. A couple of tombs, here and there, referenced this king. But overall, Tutankhamun, or neb ra was a minor entry in the history of the pharaohs. Then, a series of discoveries started to increase Tutankhamun's profile. First, excavations at Karnak uncovered a record of this pharaoh. A stone slab, or stela, that bore a text of King Tutankhamun. This was the Restoration Decree. It described Tutankhamun's piety for the great gods, and his gifts to their honour. We discussed the Restoration in episode 141. Long story short, 
That text is one of the major records for Tutankhamun as a ruler. Over the next few years, more items came to light. In the Valley of the Kings, excavators made a couple of interesting discoveries. First, diggers found a small blue cup. It was made of faience, and it bore a text, the cartouche of Neb Kebarura, aka Tutankhamun. This was a small find, nothing particularly significant, but it was valuable in one respect. It confirmed that Tutankhamun or his government had been active in the Valley of the Kings. So that was a start. Then, another find, also in the valley. In 1907, excavators cleared a small pit, KV-54. It was not a tomb, just a storage dump. The pit contained objects related to King Tutankhamun, food, pottery, and so forth. But it also had traces of embalming material, linen and natron, the items used to make mummies. I described that pit last episode. Long story short, this discovery was another clue. Tutankhamun had been in the Valley of the Kings. Finally, a major find. In 1909, archaeologists uncovered a tomb, a shaft with a chamber dug in the valley floor. Within that tomb, KV 58, there were pieces of gold, originally from a chariot. Those metal fragments bore hieroglyphs and images referencing Tutankhamun, and they mentioned his advisor, the high courtier, Ai. This seemed like a monument of his reign, and on that basis, the excavation's head honcho, named Theodore Davis, believed he had found the tomb of King Tutankhamun. And Davis published that opinion in 1912. He declared that the monument, with just one chamber and a few scraps, was the last trace of young Tutankhamun's burial. Of course, we know that Davis was wrong, and at the time, some people also disagreed. Apparently, Howard Carter was one of those. At some point, Carter decided that Davis had not found the tomb of King Tutankhamun. The monument, KV-58, was more likely a cache or a private burial, destroyed in later generations. With that in mind, Carter decided that the tomb of Tutankhamun might still lie undiscovered somewhere in the valley. Whether it was intact or robbed like all the others, the monument could still be there, waiting for excavation. Again, that is part of the legend of this tale. We will never know for sure if Carter truly believed in the tomb of Tutankhamun. He may have suspected, but was he really that confident? Impossible to tell. The next part of the story is long and complicated, so I will save most of it for the future. Here is the brief version. In the early 1900s, Howard Carter met a man named Carnarvon. Lord Carnarvon, to be precise. George Edward Stanhope Molyneux Herbert was the fifth generation of a British lordship, an aristocrat through and through, with inherited wealth and title to his name. He lived in England at a place called Highclere Castle. Today, most people know Highclere as the set for the TV show Downton Abbey. That is totally irrelevant, but it's a fun coincidence. George Herbert, Lord Carnarvon, had come to Egypt for his health, the warm sun and the dry climate suited him, and like many aristocrats, rich, respected, and bored, he turned his attention to Egypt's antiquities. 
Carter and Carnarvon teamed up. Carter was the archaeologist, Carnarvon was the money man, but also an enthusiastic assistant. The two worked well together, and they seemed to have become friends. For several years, they excavated in various regions. They found several tombs from the Middle Kingdom on the west bank of Luxor, ancient Waset. They uncovered temples, including a monument for King Hatshepsut. Their efforts were successful, and they published their work in a book, Five Years' Exploration at Thebes. This book is available online for free, and you can read it at your leisure. Links in the episode description. Carter and Carnarvon worked together for years, and in 1914 they finally got a chance to dig in the Valley of the Kings. The official concession, the government permit to excavate in a particular area, became available. The valley was open to a new project. Carter and Carnarvon jumped at the chance, picking up the concession as quickly as they could. Excitedly, they began making plans for excavations. They would begin in October 1914, and dig all the way to April 1915. Carnarvon was readying the funds, Carter was planning the work, and everything was going smoothly, until, well. In late 1914, Europe fell apart. Through a series of terrible events, multiple nations sleepwalked their way into the Great War, aka World War I. And as the catastrophe unfolded, Europeans in Egypt were obliged to contribute. Carter went to work for the British Diplomat Service. Carnarvon, too old to fight and too rich to work, kind of hung around. No travel, nothing to do. Over the next few years, Carter and Carnarvon did what they could. Occasionally they got a break and did some excavating. But again, those are stories for another day. Let's move on to the search for King Tutankhamun. In 1917, Carter and Carnarvon finally started their grand project. By now, Carter had a plan for excavating as thoroughly as possible. He approached the valley systematically, and he would prioritise areas where earlier diggers might have been less thorough than they should. Based on his research, Carter identified a particular zone that seemed like a good prospect. And when he started digging, he would go right down. He would clear every pile of rubble, every scrap of debris. He would reach the bedrock as often as possible. That way, he could be sure nothing would be missed. Of course, the excavation has acquired its own mythology, and I could regale you with tales of digging, of struggles, setbacks, trials and tribulations, of five years clearing and sifting with little to show for it. That search is interesting, full of personality quirks and near misses. On more than one occasion, Carter started digging around the tomb of King Tutankhamun, but for one reason or another, he got diverted. It is a fun tale in its own right, but time is pressing. Someday, in the far future, I will tell that story in greater detail. From 1917 to 1921, the team continued digging. There was little to show for it. Carter's methods were thorough. He approached the excavation systematically, and he recorded everything he found. The problem was, he hadn't found much. Over four years, the work produced small trinkets here and there. 
jars, ostraca, a few titbits. But considering the time, the effort, and the expense, this was paltry. By 1921, things started to look bleak. The problem, first and foremost, was money. The excavation relied on Lord Carnarvon and his aristocratic wealth. For five seasons, Carnarvon had funded the cost of excavation. That was not cheap. Every dig needed workers. Hundreds of people paid for their labour, organisation, and effort. There were supply costs, like food, tools, and transport. And of course, there were background costs, keeping local officials happy and friendly. With all those expenses, the bills mounted up. By 1921, Lord Carnarvon had spent 25,000 British pounds. That's 1921 money. If you convert it, roughly, Carnarvon had spent 1.2 million pounds in 2021, or 1.7 million US dollars. By any reckoning, it was a huge sum of money. And what did they have to show for it? Barely a thing. Carnarvon was in trouble. Like many aristocrats, his wealth had diminished following World War I. Inflation was surging, old social systems and relationships were evolving. And people like Carnarvon, the landed gentry, faced greater challenges to their inherited privilege. By 1921, the problem was acute. Carnarvon could no longer afford the expenses of archaeology. The search would have to end. Carter's digging finished, quote-unquote, in summer 1922. One day, Lord Carnarvon met with Carter in London. The wealthy lord, now in his fifties, had to withdraw from the project. The expense was too great, the results were too small. And other concerns, money, social upheaval, and politics, were too big to ignore. Carnarvon could no longer justify long seasons digging in Egypt. The time had come to call it a day. They had done well and worked hard, but the project had failed. Again, the next part of the story is somewhat legendary. Supposedly, Carter had one last gamble. As he met Lord Carnarvon, he opened a map showing the Valley of the Kings. Apparently, Carter pointed to a small patch of ground. It was a tiny area near the tomb of Ramesses VI from Dynasty Twenty. And Carter had started digging there a few years before. But he had stopped, because that tomb was a popular tourist destination. Carter hated visitors, so he avoided that area. Now, the archaeologist proposed one last try. He would start early, before the tourists arrived in Egypt. He would close off the tomb of Ramesses, and start digging in that hill. Supposedly, Carter had a hunch, and to prove it, he was willing to put his money on the line. As the legend goes, Carter made Carnarvon an offer. If Carnarvon would hold on to the concession, Carter would finance the excavation. He would pay the diggers, fund the supplies, and do everything necessary. For just one more season, Carter was willing to go all out and use his money for the search. The gamble was a big one, and potentially quite expensive. How would Carter afford this? He was not rich. So where did he get the money? Well, by this point, Carter knew a thing or two. He had worked in Egypt more than 20 years, and he had learned the value of certain business practices. First, it was good to have friends, preferably rich and powerful. 
and Carter had cultivated relationships with various groups. But it was also good to trade. And for many years, Howard Carter had worked a side hustle as an antiquities dealer. The idea was simple. Carter would go to the marketplaces of Luxor, Cairo, and elsewhere. He would visit the merchants who dealt in souvenirs. And with his knowledge and connections, Carter would find the rare, the genuine artifacts. In shops and stalls, offices and houses, Carter inspected items. Many of these came from tombs or temples, uncovered by the locals, or circulating through the market. However they appeared, Carter would identify the real artifacts, and when he found a good one, he would buy it. Carter acted as a broker. He would purchase antiquities, then sell them to rich tourists and colleagues. Europeans and Americans had developed a taste for ancient Egyptian items, and the market was booming. Over the years, Carter traded many of these, with a small profit each time. By 1922, he had earned enough to, maybe, fund an excavation. To be clear, this was not an admirable project. Carter dealt in antiquities for profit, and we should acknowledge that. Yes, it was a reality of Egyptology in the early 20th century. Many scholars, at all levels of the profession, participated in that trade at one point or another. Carter seems to be more honest than some, with a couple of exceptions, but whatever his personal beliefs or ethics, he still participated in the system. Many objects left Egypt and came to foreign museums because of him. We should acknowledge that as a reality of his career. By 1922, Carter had a small fortune at his disposal. He had built this money up over years, and he was willing to gamble it on one last dig. Depending which story you read, Carter's offer could have two angles. Some authors present it as a last, desperate attempt to keep the dig going. Others suggest that Carter was more calculating than it may seem. Why? Well, Carter was offering a gamble, a bet, and Lord Carnarvon had a reputation for that kind of excitement. He liked cars, sailing, golf, and racehorses. He enjoyed gambling, and his penchant for danger had cost him big on more than one occasion. However you look at it, Carnarvon was a playboy type. Carter would have known that, and it is possible he made this offer to fund the dig himself as a last decisive gamble. Perhaps Carter appealed consciously to that side of Carnarvon's personality. By making a bold proposal, Carter may have subtly prompted his patron's enthusiasm. After all, with such an offer, how could Carnarvon refuse? Or, maybe Carter got lucky. Maybe at the right moment, he said the right thing. It is impossible to say for sure what he was thinking. At the very least, Carter must have felt confident in his hunch or his determination. Confident enough to gamble a huge sum of money. So this gamble may be more calculated than it seems. A hundred years later, I will leave it to you. Perhaps he was desperate... Perhaps he knew exactly how Carnarvon would react. Whatever his motivations, it worked. Carnarvon agreed to one more season, 
in the area that Carter had identified. They would dig near the tomb of Ramesses VI, they would close the area off to tourists, and for a few more weeks, Carter could do his search. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Chapter 2. The Stairway to the Past In late 1922, Howard Carter returned to Egypt. He had successfully convinced his backer, Lord Carnarvon, to fund one more season, and with his site chosen, the archaeologist could get back to work. With luck, this last expedition would produce something. Anything, really. Carter arrived in Luxor on October 28. He spent a few days meeting with his overseers, the Reyes. These men, experienced diggers, would lead the hundreds of people who worked on a major excavation. The Reyes overseers are lesser-known heroes of Egyptian archaeology. Many of the greatest discoveries are the product of their guidance. One day, I hope to tell some of their stories. Carter and the Reyes planned out the next season and organised the workforce. This took a few days to gather people and supplies. But finally, on November 1st, things were ready. Another season, the sixth one, could begin. The workers and their overseers began to clear rubble from the Valley of the Kings. They worked in the spot that Carter had identified, just below the tomb of Ramesses VI. The work was slow. This site was occupied by a small cluster of houses dating to the New Kingdom. These houses, or huts, were the ancient homes of tomb builders associated with the monument of Ramesses. While building that tomb, the artisans had erected small, temporary dwellings. 3,000 years later, the foundations of those buildings remained. Carter and his team documented the houses, cleared them, and removed them. Once that was done, the area was ready. A few feet, maybe a metre of rubble and debris, covered the excavation zone. Carter told the team to start digging, and he went home to bed. The next day was interesting. On the 4th of November, a Saturday... Howard Carter returned to the Valley of the Kings. On his arrival, things seemed different. The valley was quiet, but it should have been noisy, dusty, and busy. For some reason, everything had stopped. In his book, Carter described the event. Quote, Hardly had I arrived on the work next morning, 4th of November, than the unusual silence due to the stoppage of work made me realise that something out of the ordinary had happened. I was greeted by the announcement that a step cut into the rock had been discovered underneath the huts. This seemed too good to be true, but a short amount of extra clearing revealed the fact 
that we were actually in the entrance of a steep cut in the rock, some thirteen feet below the tomb of Ramesses VI. End quote. In the dirt and rubble of the valley floor, something remarkable came to light. A step, rectangular and cut into the bedrock. That step led to another, and another, and on and on. The workers had uncovered a monument. Once again, we hit a moment of uncertainty. Depending on what you read, there are two versions of this story. The circumstances of the discovery, and who found the step, changes. In his book, The Tomb of Tutankhamen, Carter merely says that the workers uncovered the step. No further details on which person or persons did it. His diary is even briefer. On the day marked Saturday, 4th of November, Carter scrawled a note, First steps of tomb found. And in his journal, written a little bit later, he simply said, quote, At about 10am, I discovered beneath the hut the first traces of the entrance of the tomb. End quote. So Carter's initial accounts from his diary, his journal, and his book present it one way. During excavations, the team uncovered the step. The credit, mostly, belonged to everyone. Later, another story emerged. In the 1970s, a man named Thomas Hoving published a book, Tutankhamun, The Untold Story. This book described the tale of Tutankhamun's tomb, the discovery and its legacy. And along the way, the author presented a different version of the tale. According to Hoving, Carter's story changed in later years. In 1924, he was conducting a tour of the United States, giving lectures about the discovery and all that. Supposedly, Carter spoke to a man named Kedick during this tour, and Kedick's memoirs suggest that actually the discovery was not a team effort. Instead, Carter supposedly gave credit to a young boy, a lad carrying water for the excavation. This is the water boy version of the discovery. According to this tale, a young boy was looking for a place to set up his water pots, and as he poked the ground with a stick, he found something solid. As a result, the first step came to light, and history was made. Surprisingly, there are no records, public or private, to corroborate this story. To date, no letter, diary entry, or written material has supported the account. All we have is a story from Kedick that Carter told him the secret truth. And given what we know about Carter, his privacy, his distrust, well, something seems off. According to Dr. Christina Riggs from her blog Photographing Tutankhamun, the Waterboy tale first appears in 1978. That is when Hoving published his book, Tutankhamun, The Untold Story. But before that, there are no surviving records that speak of this person. Which begs the question, why don't we know about it? And if it is true, who was the boy? To date, that is uncertain. In the 1980s, an Egyptian local named Hussein Abdel Rasul would regale tourists with his memories of working on the Carter excavation. Sheikh Hussein was a child at the time, and eventually his story grew, or got mixed up, with the legend of the waterboy. Before too long, the idea was circulating among the public that Sheikh Hussein was that boy, and this tale has entered the popular consciousness. But is it true? This is another tricky situation. Realistically, the only people who know for certain 
died a long time ago. And if we consider a few basic facts, well, things don't look good. Firstly, Howard Carter was not present when the step came to light. By his own record, he came to the valley in the morning and found the diggers already waiting. With that in mind, the only thing we know is that Carter personally did not find the tomb. One of the workers, or several, was involved. What about the water boy? Well, that has a different problem. As far as we can tell, this story was totally unknown before 1978, 56 years after the discovery. If the tale is true, why did it take so long to come out? It is hard to answer that question without diving into speculation and historical fiction. You may assume that Carter covered up the truth, but that does not really explain it. The archaeologist always acknowledged that he, personally, was not involved, so there was no reason to hide this water boy in the story. If anything, the tale would have suited Carter quite well. It added an element of chance, luck, or fate to a rapidly growing legend. Carter liked a good story, and this one sounds up his alley. So, with no mention of the tale in the original records, you do have to wonder. The Waterboy story has become part of that legend surrounding King Tutankhamun's tomb. Is it accurate? Unclear. After 100 years, the story has developed a life of its own. If we take a step back, maybe it doesn't matter. What does matter is that in the end, it was not Howard Carter that found the tomb. It was Egyptians. Either a young boy or a team of individuals uncovered the step. The most famous discovery in Egyptology is the achievement of locals working hard in the soil of their native country. Howard Carter is the man who set this process in motion, and we give him due credit. But as always, we must acknowledge the efforts, the exertions, and the ultimate contribution of Egypt's own people. Without them, none of this would have happened. On the 4th of November 1922, the first step was achieved. Literally. A stone staircase leading to a monument had come to light. An exciting tale was about to unfold. Although, in those early days, no one knew what they had found. A step could be anything. It could be a tomb, or an unfinished monument, something abandoned mid-construction. It could be a storeroom or cache, a dumping ground for objects and mummies that needed a home. On this first day, all they had were a couple of steps. What lay ahead? That was still a mystery. For the rest of Saturday, and all of Sunday morning, diggers cleared rubble. One basket load after another, full of dirt and stone, was taken from the site. Gradually, the clearing paid off. By the afternoon of Sunday, November 5th, the team had uncovered the entrance of a tomb. The top step was clear, and the sides of the area were demarcated. At this point, excitement was building. It was not clear whose tomb this was, or what the monument would even look like, but it was something. And after five years of nothing, that was a great achievement. Basket after basket came away from the steps. Finally, the next step, a door made of stone and covered with plaster, revealed itself from the dirt. The discovery was a beacon. Later, Howard Carter described it, quote, 
a sealed doorway. It was actually true then. Our years of patient labour were to be rewarded after all. And I think my first feeling was one of congratulation, that my faith in the Valley of the Kings had not been unjustified. End quote. The excavation uncovered the top part of the door, not quite the whole thing. But even at the top, Carter could see the plaster that covered it. More importantly, he could see the stamps, impressions left by ancient officials as they sealed the door. Hopefully, these seals would give a clue to the nature of the discovery. Again, Carter described it. Quote, With excitement growing to fever heat, I searched the seal impressions on the door for evidence of the identity of its owner. But I could find no name. The only decipherable seals were those of the well-known Royal Necropolis seal, the jackal and nine captives. End quote. At this first moment, on the Sunday afternoon, there was no clue to the identity. There were seals stamped on the plaster, but none of them had a name. That is common. Many tomb seals are just symbols, like the Anubis plus nine captives that Carter references. Later, more detailed seals would come to light. But on the first day, with the sunlight beginning to fade, the secret still remained. The stamps suggested that this was an official burial for the royal necropolis, but beyond that, there was no more information. One thing was noteworthy. The staircase and the doorway were small, far smaller than your average tomb in the Valley of the Kings. Of course, burials come in all shapes and sizes, even in the valley. But the royal monuments, for the kings and such, they do tend to be larger, more grandiose, Looking at this small doorway, Carter was hesitant with his enthusiasm. Quote, One thing puzzled me, and that was the smallness of the opening. The design was certainly of the 18th dynasty. Could it be the tomb of a noble, buried here by royal consent? Was it a cache, a hiding place to which a mummy and its equipment had been removed for safety? Once more, I examined the seal impressions for a clue, but on the part of the door so far revealed, only those of the royal necropolis were clear enough to read. End quote. So the tiny portion of the doorway that was currently visible offered no clue to the owner. The architecture suggested Dynasty 18, but it was small. Too small for a king. So at first, Carter had no inkling what lay beyond. He had cleared a few steps and a tiny portion of the door. On that basis... It was hard to say. A tomb? A storeroom? A cache? The answers would have to wait, pending further digging. Nowadays, we know all too well what Carter had found. But it is interesting to imagine how he must have felt. A combination of excitement, intense anticipation, and probably worry, anxiety that this lucky find might prove to be nothing. The team had uncovered a staircase and part of a door, Beyond that, there could be anything, or there could be nothing at all. Ironically, Carter could have identified the doorway if he had just dug a little deeper. The first door of the tomb did have names, cartouches, a bit lower down. But Carter only uncovered a tiny part of the upper door. If he had just gone a little lower, he might have seen them. As it was, the secret would have to wait. The next phase might seem surprising. Having found a staircase and a door, Carter did not proceed. 
Instead, he told his workers to bury the monument once again. Fill the staircase, cover it up, hide everything at once. Why? Well, Carter needed to wait for the boss. Lord Carnarvon had spent big money funding these excavations. He was the backer, the financier, the patron, and a friend. It was only proper that Carnarvon be present for the opening of this tomb. Whatever lay beyond those doors, he deserved to be there. So Carter did not uncover the monument right away. I can only imagine how difficult that must have been. How tempting to go a little further. Maybe clear the doorway fully so that they could photograph it. In the circumstances, I applaud his self-control. I can barely resist peeking at Christmas presents, or watching the trailer for a new Dune movie. That's my level of restraint. But Carter had a massive discovery, literally on his doorstep. And yet, he resisted. Bravo! Anyway, workers began to bury the staircase once again. They poured rubble back into the cavity, and covered it as high as it had been before. To finish the job, the team even rolled a few boulders on top of the site. 48 hours after the discovery, the tomb had vanished. If you walked past that day, you would never know it was there. But then, how was that different from any other day before? The next day, November 6th, was a turning point. The tomb was covered up, and Carter had to prepare. The work would require certain things. First and foremost, he needed Lord Carnarvon. On the morning of November 6th, a Monday, Carter went to the telegraph office in Luxor. He gave a note to the operator, who tapped it out on his wireless. Again, this message is famous, another part of the legend. The telegram said, quote, At last, have made wonderful discovery in the valley. A magnificent tomb with seals intact. Recovered same for your arrival. Congratulations. End quote. The telegram appears in documentaries, books, and magazines. It is understated in the way telegrams tend to be, but it still captures the excitement of the moment. Carter, on the verge of a magnificent discovery, was brief and yet eager. It comes across even now. I am assuming that the message went out in Morse code. As far as I can tell, that was the most common language used by telegraph operators at the time. If you are a radio enthusiast and can enlighten me on telegraph operators of 1920s Egypt, well, I am eager for that niche information. Assuming the transmission did go out in Morse code, Howard Carter's message probably sounded like this. As news of the discovery went out, and events began to unfold, the culture of Egyptology changed. Permanently. Looking back, the world would divide archaeology and ancient history into two phases, before Tutankhamun and after Tutankhamun. For the general public, an entire field of research and philosophy is defined by this event. The last moment when Egyptology was a niche, occasionally famous discipline. Soon, it would grow exponentially to a science with global renown. For Carter, it would be even more definitive. The discovery itself was far beyond his wildest dreams, and his life, his career, would change significantly from its earlier trajectory. On November 6th, as he sent the telegram, the archaeologist was embarking on something greater than he could ever have imagined. 
Chapter 3. The door goes west. Carter sent his telegram. The news was received eagerly in London. As soon as practical, Lord Carnarvon set out for Egypt. He was accompanied by his daughter, Evelyn Herbert. They boarded a ship and set off. The next three weeks passed slowly. Carter described it as, quote, three weeks of uncertainty. On the one hand, the find was thrilling, an intact door, potentially a tomb. On the other hand, Carter had been disappointed before. This could be something big, but it could turn out to be a small, unobtrusive monument. Either way, only time would tell. We can assume that sometimes those three weeks felt like eternity. At last, things began to happen. Carnarvon and Lady Evelyn arrived in Alexandria, and Carter met them in Cairo. Before too long, they were all gathering in Luxor. The Lord and Lady arrived by train, and when they arrived, their reception was formal. The local governor, His Excellency Abdel Aziz Bey Yehya, met the group at the train station. So, you see the kind of pomp these people enjoyed. Soon, they were all setting off for the Valley of the Kings. On Friday, November 24th, the excavation resumed. The workers undid their previous efforts. They hauled away the boulders and cleared the rubble. Basket after basket, they removed the material. Until, at last, they had reached the doorway again. Now, the work could progress. Having cleared part of the staircase and part of the door, the team could finally go further. They dug out more rubble, sifting through the sand and stone for anything of interest. They excavated more steps until they reached the bottom. Then, they carefully uncovered the doorway itself. Soon, the monument was fully visible. The sight was tremendous. A door made of stone and covered with plaster bore the distinct impression of seals. Stamps pressed into the surface left the mark of royal officials, the ancient inspectors who secured and protected the tombs. There were different types of seals, probably from different officials, but a couple of these stood out. Carter's journal gives us the notes. Quote, 24th November. Now that the doorway was laid bare, various seal impressions bearing the cartouche of Tutankhamen were visible. In particular, in the lower portion of the doorway, where the impressions were clearest. End quote. The cartouche of Tutankhamun, or Neb Keperu Ra, lay upon the door. Carter drew a little sketch of it in his journal. You can feel the excitement coming off the page. However, there was a problem. The doorway and the plaster showed clear signs of damage. Someone, long ago, had broken through the entrance. They had penetrated the chambers beyond. It was not 100% intact. Fair enough, that was the case 99% of the time. But after years and so many disappointments, Carter was hesitant. Studying the doorway and the mass of rubble, certain facts came to light. Firstly, the door was damaged. Second, the debris contained items from a wide variety of rulers. Some of those were noteworthy. Quote, In the lower rubbish that filled the staircase, we found masses of broken potsherds and broken boxes, bearing the names of Akhenaten, Smenkkara, and Tutankhamen. Even more upsetting, a scarab of Tehutimes III, as well as a cartouche of Amenhetep III. End quote. In other words, 
The door said Tutankhamun, but the staircase rubble had items from other rulers. There were references to Akhenaten and Smenkkare, to Tutmose III and Amunhotep III. These items were broken, mostly trash, but their presence was unexpected. And thinking on the matter, Carter wondered if this monument was a tomb or something else. Quote, These conflicting data led us, for a time, to believe that we were about to open a cache, perhaps of the Amarna branch of the 18th dynasty. End quote. So, on November 24th, as the digging got underway, the situation seemed disheartening. Carter now expected to find a cache, not a tomb, a storehouse of objects and items related to the royal family. Caches are common in the Valley of the Kings. We have seen them before, like the Amana cache in KV55, episode 128. That tomb, that reburial, lay just a few meters from this new monument. A few meters. It is shocking how close they are. When you visit the tomb of Tutankhamun, you can easily walk right past KV55 and not even notice it's there. With that in mind, you can see why Carter was hesitant. The Amana cache was nearby, and this tomb looked awfully similar. Carter's excitement, or his apprehension, comes across clearly in his journals. The last line for November 24 is simple but evocative. It reads, quote, Slept the night in the valley. Carpenters commenced making a wooden grill for fixing over the first doorway. End quote. On the verge of discovery, Carter slept in the valley. He was still working, organising details like a gate for the monument. But now that the staircase lay open, the doorway revealed, the archaeologist was not leaving. He spent the night in the Valley of the Kings. Above, the stars wheeled overhead, glittering on the body of Newt. Far away, the sun god Ra travelled through the land of the dead, the kingdom of Osiris. And nearby, Closer than Carter would expect, an earthly form of Osiris, the mummy of Tutankhamun, lay sleeping in his tomb. The next morning, a Saturday, anticipation was building. Quote, November 25th, noted seals, made photographic records, which were not very successful opened the first doorway, which comprised rough stones. The removal of this blocking exposed a descending passage, the same width as the staircase, and more than two metres high. The passage was filled with stone and rubble, probably from its own excavation. End quote. As Carter and his team broke through that first outer door, they found themselves entering a corridor, a long passage descending into the rock, presented the next obstacle. The corridor was full to the ceiling with rubble, stones, dirt, sand, and debris. This was a problem. The passage was about two metres tall, or seven feet, so there was a lot of material to clear. Carter set the task, and the workers started digging. Once again, Carter could see that the passageway, the corridor, was disturbed. Someone had entered it, he knew this by looking at the rubble. Most of the material was limestone, chips of white, clean material. However, in the top left, the passage was full of darker stone, 
flint or something similar. In other words, someone had tunnelled through the original limestone filling. Then, royal officials had filled the corridor with new, blackish stone. This confirmed his earlier suspicions. The monument, whatever it was, had not escaped robbery. The team laboured for nearly a day. The passage was full, floor-to-ceiling with rubble, and the corridor itself was long, approximately 8 metres, or 26 feet. So there was a lot to clear, a lot of baskets to check, a lot of tiny items to study, record, and preserve. Doing this, hour after hour, you can imagine the combination of excitement, anticipation, and tedium. Slowly, basket after basket, the team cleared the passage. Finally, the work was done. On Sunday, November 26th, the last baskets were removed. The corridor was clear, and the next phase revealed. Ahead, the team found a second door. Like the first, it was made of stones covered with plaster, and it had the mark of seals. Stamps from royal officials covered the surface. These stamps came in a wide variety, but they included the Royal Necropolis Seal, a canine with nine prisoners. And they included the cartouche of King Tutankhamun, Neb Keperura. So, at the second doorway, the information was confirmed. This was a monument dating to his reign, and perhaps associated with him. For those wondering, the seals were the only decoration. There were no other texts, and certainly no curses. Just ancient marks from royal bureaucrats. That may not sound glamorous, but it was important. The seals marked security, the ancient closing of the tomb. So they gave a record of the history for this monument. Once again, patterns in the seals and the plaster showed signs of intrusion. The top left of the door had been opened at least once. Later, royal inspectors had patched it up and added new, distinctive seals to the work. The pattern was clearly visible. Someone had entered this tomb. The monument was not intact. Even now, Carter suspected that this was a cache, a storage place for mummies and objects. The staircase, entrance and corridor, all suggested a small minor burial. And the second door reinforced that opinion. Quote, After clearing nine metres of the descending passage, we came upon a second sealed doorway, which was almost the exact replica of the first. The entrance and passage resembled almost to measurement the tomb containing the cache of Akhenaten. End quote. In other words, the architecture or design suggested that this was a cache, a storehouse for items and possibly mummies. Yes, the seals on the doorway bore the name of Tutankhamun, but that could mean anything. If the pharaoh had organised a cache, then officials would have used his name to seal it up. In fact, the famous Amana cache, KV-55, also had seals of Tutankhamun. So, there was precedent. Standing on the threshold, the excavators were cautious. This is understandable. After five seasons and multiple failures, the idea of a genuine tomb probably seemed too good to be true. And to be fair, the architecture of this monument is unusual. For a king's burial, one would have expected something grander. But so far, everything pointed to a small monument, not a royal-sized tomb. Technically, that impression was correct. 
But Carter was about to encounter the difference between expectations, based on patterns, and the strange quirks of human history. On the one hand, this tomb did look like a non-royal monument. Its dimensions and design fit the pattern of private tombs far better than royal ones. On the other hand, there is an exception to every rule. And Carter was about to find a textbook example of that phenomenon. At last, the decisive moment arrived. You know the one. The legendary point at which Carter and his companions broke through the door. They penetrated the darkness and beheld history. The event is remembered, romanticised, and mythologised. Let me set the scene. On the afternoon of Sunday, November 26th, the team gathered in the passage. It is uncertain how many people were there. We know four of them for certain. Carter himself, Lord Carnarvon, Lady Evelyn Herbert, and a man named Arthur Callender. There were also two or more Egyptians, the overseers, or reyes, who worked with Carter and managed the operation. Unfortunately, Carter's account does not give their names. Typical. But we know at least four of these men. The overseers for Howard Carter were Ahmed Gergar, the most senior. Then there was Gad Hassan, who had worked with Carter for decades, and two more, Hussein Ahmed Said and Hussein Abu Hawad. So Carter does not give the specifics, but there could have been four overseers attending the scene. For the sake of argument, let's say everyone was there. Howard Carter, Lord Carnarvon, Lady Evelyn, Arthur Callender, Ahmed Gergar, Gad Hassan, Hussein Ahmed Said, and Hussein Abu Hawad. Eight companions standing together, a fellowship of the tomb. At long last, the moment came. After weeks of excavation and years of expectation, they were ready to open the door. It was time to do so. At this point, no one knew what lay beyond. Maybe a chamber? Maybe another corridor? Maybe a hole? Maybe nothing? In the final moments, Carter still thought he had probably found a cache, something small, maybe a storage chamber. So far, the monument seemed too insignificant, too humble for a tomb. Nevertheless, the anticipation was palpable. Around 4pm, the passage was clear, and Carter could open the door. He took a rod and battered at the plaster. Carter made a hole in the top left of the door, the same place where robbers had entered three millennia before. After a few minutes, the rod broke through. Carter took a candle and looked into the hole. His journal, written shortly after, gives his impressions. Quote, After making notes, we made a tiny breach in the top left-hand corner to see what was beyond. Darkness and the testing rod told us that there was empty space. Perhaps another descending passage, or maybe a chamber. Candles were procured, the telltale for foul gases when opening an ancient excavation. I widened the breach, and by means of the candle looked in, while Lord Carnarvon, Lady Evelyn, and Arthur Callender, with the Reyeses, waited in anxious expectation. It was some time before one could see. The hot air escaping caused the candle to flicker. But as soon as one's eyes became accustomed to the glimmer of light, the interior of the chamber gradually loomed before one, 
with its strange and wonderful medley of extraordinary and beautiful objects heaped upon one another. There was naturally short suspense for those present who could not see, when Lord Carnarvon said to me, Can you see anything? I replied to him, Yes, it is wonderful. End quote. Yet again, we have a point of uncertainty. Specifically, what did Carter say when he first opened the door? The popular version is Wonderful Things. That is from Carter's book, The Tomb of Tutankhamen, Volume 1. But Carter's journal, the record he kept during the excavation, says something different. In this version, he said, Yes, it is wonderful. Granted, the difference is small, but you can see the issue. The same author gives slightly variant accounts of the same event. To be fair, it was a moment of high emotion. The sight through the hole must have been overwhelming. With so much excitement, perhaps hindsight was murky. Perhaps Carter himself could not quite remember what he said. Curiously, there is a third version of the tale. This one does not come from Howard Carter, but his patron. Lord Carnarvon wrote a short description of the event for his personal records. Describing that first moment, Carnarvon said, quote, At last the passage was cleared. We again reached a sealed door or wall, bearing the same seals as the former one. I asked Mr. Carter to take out a few stones and have a look in. After a few minutes, this was done. He pushed his head partly into the opening. With the help of a candle, he could dimly discern what was inside. A long silence followed, until I said, I fear in somewhat trembling tones, Well, what is it? There are some marvellous objects here, was the welcome reply. End quote. Some marvellous objects. Doesn't quite have the same ring to it. But it does sound natural, in a detached English sort of way. Obviously I'm speculating, and bringing my own imagination to the question. But Carter saying marvellous objects? That's also believable, to me. Anyway, no matter what he said, Carter's words were an understatement. Out of the shadows, the light glinted off countless objects. Furniture, boxes, treasures, chariots, an immeasurable horde greeted their eyes. The chamber, they could see only one, held dozens hundreds of items. There was gold, but there was also information. On the threshold, the possibilities must have seemed endless. Having caught a glimpse, the group now widened the hole slightly, and they inserted a lamp, a portable light that could illuminate the treasures. One by one, the group took their turn gazing through. Using a lamp, they could see properly into the chamber. And as they did so, each member of the team noticed something different. In Carter's journal, he describes the impressions. Quote, the better light revealed to us the marvellous collection of treasures. Two strange effigies of a king, gold-sandaled, bearing staff and mace. Gilded couches in strange forms. Ornamental caskets, flowers, alabaster vases. Strange black shrines with a gilded snake. White chests finely carved chairs, a golden throne, a heap of large boxes, and, beneath our very eyes on the threshold, a lovely wishing cup in alabaster, stools of all shapes and design, and, lastly, overturned parts of chariots, glinting with gold, 
and peering from amongst them was a mannequin. The first impression of this treasure suggested the property room of an opera house of a vanished civilization. Our sensations were bewildering and full of strange emotion. We questioned one another to the meaning of it all. Was it a tomb, or merely a cache? End quote. Even now, the team did not quite realise what they had discovered. As they looked around, the idea of a cache persisted, a storehouse of ancient trinkets. Again, that is understandable. Looking through the hole, the tomb would have seemed incomplete. Certain things were missing. Most notably, there was no sarcophagus or coffin. So at first, the idea of a tomb may have seemed remote. Peering through the hole, the team could not be certain of anything. And with memories of other caches in his mind, Carter maintained caution. Whatever the monument was, the scale was enormous. For Carter and his colleague, the sight was overwhelming. Later, he described it as follows. Quote, Let the reader imagine how the objects appeared to us as we looked down upon them, casting the beam of light from our torch, the first sight that had pierced the darkness of the chamber for three thousand years. The light moved from one group of objects to another in a vain attempt to interpret the treasure that lay before us. The effect was bewildering, overwhelming. End quote. Well, enough said. Chapter 4. Candles in the Dark Now the tomb was open, Carter and his companions began their examination. The next step is slightly vague. You see, the official account, from Carter's journal and his book, says that the team opened the door, making a small hole, but they did not go any further. Instead, they peeked inside and left it at that. They would have to wait before entering the tomb. However, there is an alternative version. At some point, Lord Carnarvon wrote an account of the discovery, and his description is slightly different. According to Carnarvon, the group did enter the tomb on the first day. He said, quote, We enlarged the hole, and Mr. Carter managed to scramble in. The chamber is sunk two feet below the bottom passage, and then, as he moved around with a candle, we knew we had found something absolutely unique and unprecedented. After slightly enlarging the hole, we, the others, went in, and this time, we realised in a fuller degree the extent of the discovery, for we had managed to tap the electric light from the tomb above, which gave us far better illumination for our examination. End quote. This account is tricky. The content is straightforward, it seems self-explanatory. But we do not know when Carnarvon wrote this. The text is undated, and it resides in the archives of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Beyond its existence, we don't know much about the context. When did Carnarvon write it? Who was it for? This is unclear. With that in mind, Carnarvon's account is somewhat unreliable. He probably wrote it a while after the tomb was fully opened, so it's possible he is condensing several events in his memory. We know for certain that the group opened the tomb on November 26th, 
and they removed the door entirely on November 27th, just a few hours later. So we can't be sure if Carnarvon is describing things accurately. If he wrote this account much later, his memory might be off the base. So it is uncertain. Why do we care? Well, this secret entry, quote-unquote, is a point of conflict. If you think Carter and his colleagues snuck into the chamber on that first day, then the excavation becomes slightly more sketchy. For some authors, like Thomas Hoving, the first day is something sinister, not a moment of discovery, but an invasion more akin to grave robbing. So our vision of the excavation and its participants can change wildly, depending on which chronology we use. Personally, I don't know what happened. I will assume they did not enter. Lord Carnarvon's account may be in error, or at least condensing several events into one. And Carter always stuck to his story, that they only looked through the hole. So, on the current evidence, I will give them the benefit of the doubt. But realistically, it is 50-50. If you flip a coin, I might be willing to accept either result. Whether they entered the tomb or not, the group had seen something incredible. And when they departed to head back home, their experiences left them humbled. In his book, Carter described the journey. Quote, we reclosed the hole, locked the wooden grill that had been placed upon the first doorway, left our Egyptian staff on guard, mounted our donkeys, and rode home down the valley, strangely silent and subdued. End quote. The group were quiet, contemplative. Understandable, I think. You could probably count on one hand the number of people who have experienced this kind of moment. A tomb, hidden for thousands of years, and containing all its original items? To be the first person, the first pair of eyes to look through that hole? Well, there are no words to capture that kind of experience. So, the tomb of King Tutankhamun opened, sort of, on Sunday, November 26, 1922. It is unclear whether Carter and his friends entered the monument, or simply peered through the hole. Either way, the following day would be the official opening of the tomb. On Monday, the 27th, Carter was on site early. His assistant, Arthur Callender, set up wires and electrical lights to give them visibility when they removed the door. That process took all morning, but eventually it was done, and by noon, the team was ready. Carter removed the door completely from the corridor. With that, the chamber was opened at last. In the light of day and electricity, the scale of the discovery became apparent. First, the room contained many objects, hundreds in fact. Some were large, like vehicles and furniture. Others were small, religious symbols, personal trinkets, and provisions for eternity. I will describe all of those a bit later. First, let's stay focused on the discovery, the opening of the monument. As the team studied the room, they quickly became overwhelmed by the sheer number of items. In his journal, Carter described it, quote, It soon became obvious that we were merely on the threshold of the discovery. The sight that met us was beyond anything one could conceive. This mass of material crowded into the chamber without order, so crowded that you were obliged to move with anxious caution. It was very bewildering. End quote. So the find was big. How big? 
Well, that would take time to figure out. But certainly, this was larger than anyone had expected. Years later, Howard Carter recorded his impressions in audio. Reading part of his book, Carter described the sense of antiquity and chaos in the chamber. The recording survives, and here is a part of it. Quote, I suppose most excavators would confess to a feeling of awe, almost embarrassment, when they break into a tomb closed and sealed by pious hands so many centuries ago. Thirty-three centuries had passed since human feet last trod the floor on which we stood, and yet the signs of recent life were around us. A half-filled bowl of mortar, a blackened lamp, the chips of wood left on the floor by a careless carpenter. We will hear more from Mr. Carter as the story progresses, but suffice to say, the opening of this chamber must have seemed greater than anything they could imagine. The first room was a treasure trove of fabulous objects. But amidst the treasures, Carter and his team noticed certain discrepancies. The monument was stacked with amazing items, but there were also signs of disruption. Things were not quite right, and in his journal, Carter observed, quote, Everywhere, we found traces of disorder caused by some early intruder. Objects overturned, broken fragments lying upon the floor, all added to the confusion. End quote. Once again, ancient crimes were visible. Robbers had intruded at least once. They had ransacked the hall, making off with metal, leather, and linen. It was impossible to say how much was missing, how many items they took, but clearly, robbers had been there. The tomb was not intact. There is a popular misconception that the tomb of King Tutankhamun was 100% undisturbed. That is almost true, but robbers had entered the tomb once or twice, so the real number was more like 95% undisturbed. Or, to quote a famous miracle worker, the tomb was mostly intact. His daddy can't talk. Look who knows so much, huh? Well, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Please open his mouth. So the tomb had been robbed once or twice, and the chaos was all around to see. But overall, the collection seemed mostly okay. And with each investigation, the scale of this discovery continued to grow. On Monday, November 27th, the first chamber was revealed. The room and its contents were visible to the living. It was a complicated space. If you'll indulge me, I would like to explore it. Let's start with the room itself. The first chamber is small, 7.8 meters wide, or 25 feet, and 3.5 meters long, 13 feet. That may sound large, but once you're in the space itself, well, that hall is cramped. Traditionally, a chamber like this would be larger. It would have columns or pillars supporting the roof, and it would have decorations on the walls and ceiling. Tutankhamun does not have these features. His chamber is plain, undecorated, and above all, small. For the excavators, the tiny dimensions were a problem. So many items packed into the space made a powerful sense of clutter. Objects were stacked on top of one another, 
shoved into corners or crammed into any space available. So the first chamber was kind of organized chaos. Among the items, there were groups, clusters of specific objects. But there was also a sense of confusion, as if things had moved around or been shoved into place without much plan. Overall, the first chamber was strange. It seemed disorderly. Today, we know why. The monument was prepared in haste. Building it, the architects had little time to expand or decorate. They did what they could, but certain chambers were lacking. And in the funeral, royal servants had to work in a confined area. With so many objects and so little room, they had to make do. The result was more like a hoard than a proper burial. So from the start, you get a sense of the ancient events. The tomb was prepared in a rush. Items were shoved wherever they would fit. Organisation was an afterthought at best. I will describe the treasures in a moment. First, let me introduce this chamber as a concept. You see, every part of an Egyptian tomb had a purpose, and it had a name. The ancient Egyptians had a whole mess of terms and labels for the different parts of these monuments. Today, archaeologists can reconstruct the names thanks to various records. So, right out the gate, we can guess the identity of this chamber. There are three possibilities. The first is Ta Wesket Ma'at. This translates as the Hall of Ma'at, aka the Hall of Truth, Justice, or simply Order. You could think of this as a space where the chaos of the earthly world should fall away. When you enter this room, you are entering a space created by gods. It is regimented and ordered by their divine will. That might sound ironic, given this chamber was kind of messy. So maybe the Hall of Ma'at is not the best name for the room. How about the second? Besides the Hall of Ma'at, we could also name this chamber Ta-Wesket Merket. This translates as the Chariot Hall, which is a bit more fitting. Among the glittering treasures found in the room, Tutankhamun's Chariot Hall included golden chariots. They were in pieces, carefully disassembled and stacked together, but they were there ready for the king's use in eternity. Finally, the room might be Tawesket Isech, aka the Hall of Waiting, or the Hall of Hindering. This one is clear enough, a room of waiting or a place to stop any intruders. The significance of the Hall of Waiting varies between different tombs, and also different scholars, but long story short, the Hall of Waiting was a place to delay anyone entering the tomb. Whether they were friendly or hostile, visiting spirits would need to stop and wait in this space. So we have a few candidates for the name of this chamber. Depending on the scholar, you will find the spaces labelled in different ways. I'm not an expert on tomb building and theology, so I can't say who is right. All I can say is, the Hall of Ma'at, the Hall of Chariots, and the Hall of Waiting are all possible names. Whichever is accurate, they are all pretty cool. So that's the first chamber overall. It is small and cramped, and it might have different names, but you get the idea. This room was the beginning of Tutankhamun's burial halls. Now that we have introduced it, let's explore the chamber itself. Let's see what it contained.
Chapter 5. The Antechamber Unmasked On November 27th, the first hall of the tomb was open. Its contents were revealed. For us, it is time to study the objects, the items kept in Tutankhamun's antechamber. I can't describe all of these. We would be here forever. But a few pieces will give an idea. I'd like to start with the smaller items. Books often focus on the big ones, the glamour pieces. But there are some delightful objects hidden amidst the gold. First, there was food. Tutankhamun went to his rest with meat, including ox and goose. He had vegetables like chickpeas, lentils, and peas. There was fruit, including dates, dried grapes, figs, and even watermelon seeds. Also, spices, coriander, sesame, black cumin, and juniper berries. Finally, Tutankhamun had finger foods, most notably almonds. Add some jars of honey, plenty of wine, and huge amounts of bread, and the king had a real banquet to enjoy in eternity. There were also plants, large bouquets leaning against the wall. The bouquets are mostly leaves, no flowers. They come from the persia tree and the olive tree. Both of those trees had religious and royal significance in ancient Egypt, and we can assume that these bouquets were carried in procession, part of the funeral decorations. Priests or porters might have brought these with the treasures, and when they filled the tomb, they placed the plants by the door. So there was plenty of organic material, food and plants to sustain and please the king. Tutankhamun went to his afterlife with a banquet and bouquets. Perhaps, in the next world, he could use these items to create a garden picnic. Next, there were instruments, items for music and entertainment. Tutankhamun had a few different instruments. First, there were sistra, rattles used in ceremonies lying in the antechamber. The sistra are wood, plated with copper. If you look at them from the front, they resemble the ankh symbol, or life. And in the loop at the top, the sistra have bars of metal. Three of these bars go through the loop, and on the bars are small clusters of discs, plates of metal like a tambourine. Basically, you shake the sistrum, and the discs rattle in a jingling chime. Tutankhamun's sistra are lovely, and they might have sounded like this. The sistra lay on a couch where somebody had deposited them after the funeral. You can imagine a priestess using this in the procession. These instruments tended to appear with religious women. They were associated with the goddess Hathor, and they were thought to invoke or awaken that deity. So priestesses may have carried these sistra in the funeral. Then, when the rituals were done, they laid them down as a gift to the king. Of course, the most famous instruments are the trumpets, a pair of silver and bronze instruments shaped like lotus flowers. The trumpets are decorated, images on the bell show Tutankhamun with the gods, and hieroglyphs record his names. To date, these trumpets are unique. No other items like them have survived in Egyptian archaeology. The instruments were played live for the BBC in 1939, we heard part of this performance in episode 142. But for those who missed it, or want a refresher, here is a repeat. Mm-hmm. 
Finally, there were clappers. In a side room, off the antechamber, Carter and his team found a pair of ivory sticks. They are curved, shaped like arms, with hands at the end. The clappers are approximately 16 centimetres long, or 6 inches, and they bear inscriptions naming their owner. Surprisingly, the names are not Tutankhamun's, they are someone else. The clappers seem to be heirlooms belonging to Princess Merit Aten. This was the eldest daughter of Akhenaten and Nefertiti. Merit Aten might be the sister of Tutankhamun, it depends how you reconstruct the family bloodline. We do not know for sure. What we do know is that Merit Aten's ivory clappers appeared in Tutankhamun's tomb. Maybe they were hand-me-downs that wound up in his possession. Maybe they went into the chambers to clear out the royal storehouses. Either way, they are curious items. Another piece in the puzzle of the burial. One of my favourite items from Tutankhamun's chamber was a cup. It is small, made of alabaster or travertine. Milky white, the cup has a wide body and a narrow stem. There are columns of hieroglyphs on one side, and they say the usual things, names of the king and so forth. But the cup also features an evocative little text that I quite like. Part of this chalice says, quote, Neb Keperura, given life. May your ka or spirit live. May you spend millions of years. O you who loves Waset, Thebes, sit with your face to the north wind, and may your two eyes see the good place. End quote. I like that. For one thing, it references the good place, so shout out to Chidi and Janet. For another, the image of Tutankhamun resting by the celestial Nile, his face to the breeze while holding this cup, that is a nice little picture any day of the week. Those are just a few of these small pieces. We will have an opportunity to discuss more in the future. Now, let's touch on some big items. First up, Tutankhamun's royal chariots. Entering the room from the doorway, the excavators found a huge assembly of goods. To the left, a set of chariots were stacked together. They were in pieces, disassembled, but they rested in a single group. These chariots are magnificent. They are wood, covered with gold, and decorated with carvings. These are probably the ceremonial chariots, used for parades. On their bodies, the chariots have images of the king. Tutankhamun tramples his enemies and brings them as prisoners. Classic stuff. One amazing feature of these chariots is a canopy. A kind of wooden umbrella was discovered in the chamber. For a long time, scholars thought that this was a canopy related to a throne or a dais. But recently, scholars re-examined the object, and they realised it was most likely attached to a chariot. The canopy has two poles that stick up to the top. There, a sort of umbrella fan stretches out. You could cover this fan with linen or with leather, and create a portable umbrella. With that, the king could stand on his chariot while still enjoying the shade. This was a lovely item. You can imagine Tutankhamun riding in a festival while the sun beats down overhead. Fortunately, the king is protected by this small, wobbling umbrella attached to the chariots. It's just cool. Along with the chariots, the other famous items are couches. 
When Carter opened the door and peered through into the tomb, the first thing he noticed were large golden frames. Furniture made of wood and covered with metal. They were shaped like animals, with tails at one end and heads at the other. The couches are distinctive. One is a lion, another is a cow, and the third is a hybrid, part hippopotamus, part lion. These couches are beautiful. They are famous classic images of the tomb. So I won't say much about them. What I will say is that the couches have a funny mistake. You see, the furniture comes in pieces. You can dismantle these couches and slot them back together. That was necessary. The couches are too large to fit through the doors and corridor of the tomb. To bring them in, the ancients had to disassemble them, carry the individual pieces, and then put them back together. Basically, they are ancient flat packs, IKEA-style projects to get the items in. The ancients had to disassemble the couches to bring them inside, and as they reassembled them, the artisans got mixed up. Each of these couches has a text, a small inscription that identifies the animal or god they depict. Well, two of these couches are mismatched. It seems that the artisans did not check properly when they put them back together. So the body of one couch should actually go with another, and vice versa. I'm sure this was an honest mistake, but it does remind us of the rushed, hurried circumstances in which Tutankhamun was buried. It seems that the people were bringing items in as quickly as possible. Along the way, some mistakes occurred. Today, that mistake is preserved for eternity. Ouch. The couches did not stand by themselves. They had items on top and below. Many of these items were mundane, the boxes of food, various trinkets and so forth. But one item caught the excavator's eye. A golden throne, decorated with images of the king and queen. That rested beneath one of the couches. We have seen this throne before, in episode 139, the start of Tutankhamun's reign. Which seems so long ago. Finally, we have the statues. On the right, as you enter the tomb, there used to be a wall, an artificial barrier of mud brick and plaster. This wall blocked passage to the next part of the monument. And before this wall, a pair of statues stood guard. They stood on opposite sides, facing one another. They are wood, painted black with resin, and decorated in gold. They wear kilts that stick out at the front in a triangular shape. Each statue has the same pose. They step forward with their left foot, and in their left hand they hold a staff. In their right hand they clutch a mace or club. On their arms they have golden bracelets, on their shoulders a necklace, and on their heads the statues wear headdresses. These images guard the tomb, protecting the king's burial chamber. The statues are not unique to King Tutankhamun. Archaeologists have found similar fragments in other tombs. But to date, Tutankhamun's guardian statues are the only ones recovered, whole and intact from a royal tomb. So they are a special example of this item. A lovely image of ancient burial practices. Supposedly, statues like these might have had secret cavities. Slots carved in the wood and covered over with gold. In other statues, such cavities might hold papyrus, the Book of the Dead, or something similar. That is certainly what Carter and his companions were hoping. 
In the early days of excavation, they wondered if they might find something written by the king himself, and the more religious among observers hoped that Tutankhamun might have left a record of biblical events. All of these things seemed possible in those first exciting days. Unfortunately, the statues do not have hidden papyri. Scholars have x-rayed these statues, and found no evidence for secret cavities or items. Disappointingly, for some, the statues are what they seem to be. Images of the king guarding a wall of his chamber. That does not take away from their value, though. To date, these are the only examples of guardian statues surviving from a royal tomb, and any way you look at it, they are beautiful images of Tutankhamun. Standing silently in the antechamber, these guardian statues were magnificent examples of ancient Egyptian beliefs. The guardian statues stood across from one another, besides a wall. Why were they there exactly? Well, as the archaeologists studied the chamber, they realised the truth. Even in the dim light of their candle and lamp, it was clear. This northern wall was artificial. It was stone or mud brick covered with plaster, and there was a distinct impression of a door. The statues to either side were guarding another chamber. What lay beyond? Well. When Carter and his companions examined these statues and the wall, they realised something important. So far, they had assumed that this monument was a cache, a storehouse of ancient treasures buried by Tutankhamun. But those statues and the wall they guarded suggested something more. Carter studied the wall. On the plaster, there were stamps from royal officials. They bore the name of King Tutankhamun, just like the doorways to the tomb itself. Examining these, Carter realised the truth. There was more beyond that wall. And in his journal, he recorded the immense feelings that overwhelmed him. Speaking of this realisation, Carter said, quote, It was clear that the place was Pharaoh's tomb and not a mere cache. We had only entered the anterior chambers, filled with magnificent equipment, equal only to the wealth and splendour of the new kingdom. We had found a royal burial, little disturbed, save for hurried plundering at the hands of ancient robbers. It was a sight surpassing all precedent, and one we never dreamed of seeing. We were astonished by the beauty and refinement of the art, by the objects surpassing all we could have imagined. The impression was overwhelming. End quote. As they studied the northern wall, the truth crystallised. The monument was a tomb, a royal tomb, containing the burial of King Tutankhamun. Beyond the wall, they could expect treasures suitable to the 18th dynasty, one of Egypt's golden ages. And to bring it all together, the monument seemed mostly intact. Robbers had entered once or twice, but they had done little damage. Beyond, the archaeologists could expect some truly wonderful things. On Sunday, November 26, 1922, Howard Carter opened the first chamber of King Tutankhamun's tomb. It was mid-afternoon, around 4pm, but the team worked in darkness. Several metres beneath the earth, Carter and his colleague made a small hole in the door. Peering through, they saw amazing things. 
The candle, then a lamp, shone on a huge assortment of goods. There were couches, chariots, statues and boxes, shrines, chairs, pottery and flowers. Hundreds of items stacked together, jumbled and disordered. In the darkness, with just a candle or a lamp, the items were hard to make out. And no matter where the candle turned, they saw the same result. Gold. Everywhere the glint of gold. Of course, the first chamber was not the only chamber. There were more. Most notably, the statues at the northern end seemed to guard a door. It was plastered over and hidden from view. But it was there. What lay beyond? Well, that was a story for the next few days. certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu.